Good afternoon and, and good evening. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to the Gulf Intelligence Global Energy Outlook Forum. Um, I'm this, we're in the Americas session now. We just started that about half an hour ago, having visited Asia Pacific, Middle East and Europe. And for the next two, three hours, we'll be hearing from a few of the 50 analysts that we have uh, uh, accumulated today to give us their, their insights for the year ahead, 2024, on what's happening in the energy markets. Uh, I'm delighted to be joined on this panel by Clay Siegel, Director of Oil Service at Rapidan Energy Group, Brian Pieri, founding member of Energy Rogue, Mike McClone, Senior Macro Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, and James McCallum, CEO and Chairman of Exergy Group and Professor of Energy at Strathclyde University. Thanks so much for joining us, gentlemen. And we're going to be discussing for the next half an hour uh, what impact the oil, US oil majors, M&A activity that we saw in 2023, in the, in the cusp of 23, the final quarter, what impact is that or could that have on uh, capital expenditure towards, uh, you know, boosting output levels in the US even more? We just had a session uh, an hour ago uh, where one of our speakers was adamant that the reason, you know, the, the surprise of the year last year actually was U.S. production amongst all the other sort of gray or black swans that we may have encountered, that that really was a, a surprise to, to everybody. Um, so let's talk a bit about that and see also what, what lies ahead. Um, Clay, let me welcome you again and, and start with you first. First of all, you know, was this a surprise to you or, or did you see it coming? And, you know, do you expect the same uh, as we move into the new year? Hi, Viala. Thank you for inviting me and Rapid in to participate today. And Happy New Year. Um, that's right. You know, the our outlook is that the new year, 2024, is going to bring continued growth in uh, U.S. supply, but it's not going to be as robust as we saw last year. And I think for many observers, the the timing, if not the volumetric increase from non-OPEC sources like the United States was a bit of a surprise. Uh, some projects in places like uh, U.S. Gulf of Mexico, but also Brazil and others uh, in the non-OPEC category came on faster than the market was expecting. Um, so good news for balancing the market uh, from a consumer standpoint to have more supply, but obviously tricky for uh, OPEC plus to manage markets and expectations uh, when supply comes on faster. The uh, the situation for the new year is, like I said, U.S. is going to continue to grow, but at a slower pace. So maybe like low to mid single digit percentage, um, actually, for the next several years. So it won't be as robust as what we saw in 24, in 23. Sorry. Okay, thanks, Clay. James, let me go to you on that. Um, we've got the EIA forecasting. We are going to have sort of robust production this year, next year. As Faye said, perhaps not this jump that we saw in, in 2023. But, you know, hmm. on, on the technical side, let's, let's, let's say, is, is this something that the US, that's what this US majors can do, the super majors now, the M&A, the stronger cash, um, cash flows that they may have, will that make the difference to maintaining these levels that we've seen, do you think, uh, or, or not? Well, look, I mean, I think for, for me, the surprise um, was that the increase in production in the United States didn't primarily come from increased drilling activity, which is which would have traditionally been what you would have expected to see. And we often chat, as, as you know, Diala, about, 
you know, the, 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 all of the rig activity that was the, the direct rig activity was going into recompletions on wells which were producing as much. I think the great success story there has been a, a, a technology one, uh, two, twofold. Um, obviously, increasing production from existing wells, um, deferring depletion in the fields where those wells existed. And the second is obviously in, in following a much more efficient process in terms of bringing that production on stream. So, you know, whilst there was an awful lot of discussion last year um, around, quite rightly, the energy transition, clearly the digital transformation of the industry is also well underway as, as, as the energy producers are becoming more efficient in terms of the methodologies used to bring that production on stream and using their capital much more efficiently, which, of course, is taking a very big box for Wall Street. Okay, well, you mentioned Wall Street. Brian, uh, welcome, and let me go to you on that. Of course, in the shale patch, we've seen uh, before last year, we'd seen a sort of plateau, a slowdown, plateauing, et cetera, as shareholder sort of uh, priorities uh, were kept by, by the players there uh, and, you know, as, as sort of demand dropped, I suppose, as well. So so they were sort of juggling the, those buckets. Um, but again, the same question to you going forward for this year, uh, from, from what you're hearing um, you know, are we going to see continuous incremental increases in U.S. production now that we've made this jump last year? Uh, and and how how fast do you see that happening and, and where will it plateau once again? OK, uh, let me say a couple of quick things, which is uh, one one basic building block is building production off the back of rigs and from the covid P or trough. To the peak of rigs in the U.S. last year, we grew rigs by 300%. And during that same period, we grew production by 20%. So the, the fact of the matter is it takes a lot of economic momentum. And that economic momentum is shifted to where the rigs are starting to come back off. Now, to James's point, there are a lot of recompletions and a lot of things that are going to keep it up. But the, the basic engine of new drilling is starting to slow down. So I actually take a contrarian view that uh, we've seen the peak. And another point that I'd like to make is from 12 point, uh, 12 point, well, 12 million barrels a day to 13.2 is where we exited 2023. Mm. About 300,000 barrels a day is a change in how EIA reports their numbers. It, there's transfers of crude that are, is used as blending stock, and that's been added into the number, and they used to handle it differently. So I actually see that the the actual production is beneath the headline, and that we're actually about to start a decline, and, and I'll, I'll be bold and say we're probably going to struggle to stay above 12 unless we see a response on rigs this year. Okay, thanks, Brian. So, Mike, I mean, on that on that point, uh, and and looking at sort of the price, let's say, of oil, um, does it make a difference? I mean, every, you know, shale is, is is economic, obviously at today's prices. But how, you know, what difference would it make if if we see saw you know prices drop this year, oil prices, uh, and and would that impact things, or does it make no, you know, or, or are we going to see that sort of plateauing anyway? Um, where are you on that in terms of the cost of production, and what would spur uh, more or less production there? Well, I'm still bearish crude oil prices. I think the pendulum is going to continue to swing lower on the back of that big pump to the peak in 2022. 
Um, but I think the key thing, and it's what we've already you've already discussed with Clay, James, and Brian already, is this surprise in production. For some of us, wasn't this surprise, but it's on the back of the normal invisible hand that Adam Smith taught us about, and an elasticity in supply and demand. And Brian point and James point out it's just easier than ever and more efficient than ever for people to produce commodities with less, and we use less now. Yes, there's certain emerging markets they're still using, but the macro for commodities is very poor. And this is where I like to point out was to use crude oil in an isolation um, away from other commodities is what. A lot of people missed last year. And Brian and I talked about this earlier. We've already got the example from U.S. natural gas. We just we talked about it right before we online. Natural gas has done what I think crude oil will do. It got too expensive. It made it a lower high. And now it's stuck between two and four in the U.S. for who knows how long. Crude oil is doing that. So I think crude oil is going to head towards 40. And it's also similar macro because I think copper is heading towards three. Right now, it's a little bit closer to four. And I think corn is heading towards four. Now, those are the three seeds of commodities. And I like to point out the only one that's really going up is gold and for good reason. Now, we can get into that later. But this is why I like to rope in the macro of crude oil. Of all the commodities, it is not only the most significant, but is also the most autocorrelated. And then you look at all the, the major shifts that happened. This is one key thing that really kept me bearish is reading the book. Um, the domino, uh, domino Effect by Eric Brazil. And I can mention three or four other books that point out these cycles I'm talking about. And now we're into a very bearish cycle right now. We're just, we haven't even started central bank easing, starting with the Fed. And typically it takes a long and variable lag from the start of an easing cycle for commodities to bottom, PPI is the bottom, which is negative in this country, which is negative in China, and for isms to bottom, which are just tilting, breaking below 50 in this country and on a global basis are almost there. So the cycle is very bad for commodities. We got too expensive to 2022. We brought in all this supply. We squashed um, demand, most, not so much, but we curtailed it. And now it's all swinging downward. And the key question I like to ask for this year is what stops this downward trajectory in all commodities? I, I mentioned the C's, copper, crude, and corn. And the key thing what it usually takes is some kind of significant surprise demand out of China, which is tilting negative. All the things I read in, in my our Bloomberg economics point about China is it's just similar to what happened in Japan. It's just reverting a little bit. And so that's why I see WTI this year might hit $40 a barrel. I think it's very unlikely to get above 90 um, and I think that's going to be part of that reset that's normal. And most of us have lived through this. We have to see that reset. You got to get prices squashed before you can squash um, that excess of supply. So there's one key metric I'll end with that I've been really watching a lot this year or last year. I started watching it more. And that's the excess of liquid fuel supply versus demand in the U.S. and Canada. And I say liquid fuel because it's not just WTI. I come from a farm background. We in this country get almost 15 percent of our unleaded gas from um, ethanol. By the way, that demand's declining. But if you take that metric and you add an, an OPEC spare capacity, which is trying to be offset that excess supply from the U.S., it's almost 12 percent of global production. 2008, when WTI peaked, it's around eight, eight, um, it was around an 8 percent deficit. So to me, that's the bent, the tilt. And I have a question I ask myself at this stage is by the end of this year, what stops this trajectory towards lower prices and commodities? I don't see it at the moment. Well, I mean, let's let's thanks, Mike. Clay, let me go to you with that. I mean, OPEC, I mean, Mike mentioned OPEC and you meant them, mentioned them earlier. Just in the context of U.S. production, what stops the trajectory, OPEC's been trying to stop a, a, a further down trajectory, at least uh, in, the, in the second half, latter part of last year, as, as, the, as the picture weakened. The U.S. Uh, may have sort of thrown a spanner in that works. 
But I mean, Clay, what about that in terms of forward-looking uh, OPEC plus policy, do you think, in the context of this US production, even if we stay where we are, market share is coming back into it, isn't it? We're coming back to the sort of market share, possibly market share concerns for OPEC plus. The US clearly has a case, an interest to keep prices down for the election year, et cetera. So do you think that evolving dynamics between the US and OPEC plus will change this year? Uh, what's your expectation there? Well, I mean, bottom line up front, we think that uh, we have a very different price outlook at Rapidan than Mike has illustrated. We, we do believe that we'll average Brent around $75 uh, this year. So we've we've placed our, our stakes are in the ground and yeah. let's see how we do. But um, we, I think one of the reasons we're more constructive is we think that OPEC plus will hold together and will be eventually effective in balancing the market um, with these supply and demand concerns. And so we believe that they're going to have to, for example, extend once again, the supply cut regimen beyond the announced uh, first quarter duration all the way through the first half of this year. And that's what we model in our base case scenario to get the kind of price outcome that I described. If we're wrong about that, and if they don't extend those supply cuts that were announced recently, then of course we would have a much weaker fundamental condition and we would have inventories building like crazy. Uh, in the second quarter, we would have a more bearish outcome than our base case outlook. Uh, with regard to overall dynamics though, it's clear that sentiment has shifted uh, against, against OPEC plus and, and confidence in the group. We see um, in terms of managed money participants uh, building big net short positions in, in crude oil futures and options and sending the signal that more needs to be done uh, on the physical side. What the, one of the things that we're watching for most of all though, in terms of the base case price outlook is the level of influence by the geopolitical risk on, on the concern for supply disruptions. I mean, in our opinion, the market is mispricing uh, significantly the risk that the, we, we will see supply disruptions coming from the conflict in the Middle East. It's been a complete nothing burger. The market has blown it off 100% ever since, I guess, that speech by by Hassan Nasrallah from, from Hezbollah back in November when he basically said, hey, we, we stand with the Palestinians in Gaza, but we're, we're basically on the sidelines and, and you guys do your thing. So there's been limited border clashes between Israel and Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. Everyone's been reading about it. But in our opinion, between that uh, risk of a bigger conflagration between Israel and Hezbollah and also what's unmistakably escalating in terms of the Red Sea and risk to oil shipping there, uh, and driving up costs, et cetera. We, we think that there is a material chance that Iran could become uh, directly involved in the fighting in the Middle East. And for us, we think about the potential for a disruption in oil exports from the Arabian Gulf via that narrow choke point at the Strait of Hormuz. For us, in our modeling, that's a $40 you know, oil price mm -hmm. spike. It's not our base case. Uh, we think it's only about 30% probable, but 30% is, is far from zero. And uh, again, I mean, you don't have to be a computer scientist or a mathematician, a 30% risk rating on a $40 event should still be like $10, $12 into the price of crude, uh, accurately discounting that risk of supply disruption. So we think that that maybe the next move for crude oil is probably going to be a little bit higher as the market reprices the risk of disruptions from that event. Okay, thanks, Clay. So, Brian, just to go to you with that, I mean, do you agree that the risk premium, obviously, it's been discounted in the last few months? We have seen more activity around the Red Sea, as you said, and, and, and sort of no real physical disruptions yet. But 
certainly more than a couple of months ago. Um, Brian, on that front, I mean, yes. So, you know, how soon will the market and with players in the market start to sort of add that risk premium, if you like, whether something happens or not, will we see them do that? You know, that, <clears throat> that pardon me, it, it, that's a great question because it, as Clay said, it's kind of been forgotten, the geopolitical risk, because we have two major, major wars that are going on in areas that are around or impactful on supply. I mean, Russia produces over 10 million barrels a day and the Strait of Hormuz, as as Clay mentioned, I mean, that is a $40, I, I don't know if it's $40, but it's massive. It, if, if something happens in that area, it is a massive impact. So I, I agree with Clay. It is not in the current price. Uh, a lot of the macro um, grinding down on price, in my opinion, Mike's making me uh, think a little bit differently. So I, I appreciate Mike's thoughts because I, I hold a different camp than Mike, but he's he's definitely giving me thoughts to think about. But uh, I <clears throat> I see that um, it it is going to come down to supply and demand. And right now, we from 2022 to 23. Using OPEC's numbers, we grew by 2 million barrels a day of, of uh, demand growth. And now part of this is building back and catching up from the COVID, uh, the, the COVID backlog. But OPEC's productions pricing in a U.S. recession includes an additional 2 million barrels a day of growth in 2024. Now, you, you could argue whether or not that's true or false, but I see declining supply in the U.S., I see uh, I see geopolitical risk that is not factored into the price there. And uh, in addition to that, some problems that Russia may have continuing to keep up their production flow. If, if I look at that trifecta and then add in the additional problems that could happen around the Strait of Hormuz or, or, mm. or, or whatever, I think I think we're drastically underpriced. So that's yeah, that, I... that's my personal opinion. Okay, yeah, I suppose anything. I mean, if we do get that escalation, that would be a big, big change. Russian oil flows, perhaps others would disagree because we've seen Russian oil continue to flow. It's still getting to market in different ways. But mm-hmm. uh, my sense is the market has, has, has discounted that completely now and that, that the expectation is things will continue as they are. Um, James, just, just back to you, uh, in terms of sort of U.S. production, and it's a U.S. election year, and of course, and we have a session on this later on actually about uh, you know, Biden's sort of uh, statement when he came uh, into office uh, just under four years ago, pledging to not renew licenses, et cetera, for the oil and gas industry and the IRA bill we saw uh, start to be passed um, last year. Uh, how does this tally, and we'll be asking other panelists later on the other session about this, but how do we reconcile the sort of biggest climate change um, investment that's coming out of the IRA bill that's happening very, very concretely uh, in America with with the fact that uh, Biden administration has been encouraging more oil and gas production in the last since the Ukraine war. I mean, do you see that still sort of running hand in hand? Um, yeah, I think there's there's multiple parts to that, Diana. I think the Biden administration, um, certainly from my perspective, looking from the outside in, I'm sure Mike will have an internal view and perspective on this, has been to try to increase production, but not in the US. Now, whilst what we've just been talking about is is that we saw um, an increase in production over the course of the last year, which is indeed undoubtedly slowing, 
as I said earlier on, that increase in production has not been coming from you know, huge change in, if you like, um, drilling activity or, or more, more importantly, capital expenditure is been coming from improvements in production efficiency, improvements in terms of cost efficiency in the process. And in actual fact, I think the merger activity that we've seen over the course of, of from 2023 through 2024, and whilst there were some pretty um, eye-dropping, um, eye-watering, sorry, um, mergers done between with Exxon and and Chevron um, yeah. last year, the actual activity has is pretty much on a par with the previous year in terms of last quarter. And actual fact is down on the second quarter of 20, um, 2023. So so the the, the, the merger activity um, that's that's coming through there is part of a process of capital efficiency, responding to Wall Street, responding to the lack of debt finance available to the industry. Um, going forward. So for me, I think uh, that the reality is, as we look out there, is is that it's hard for me to, much as I, I, I like um, uh, the comments that Mike makes, it's hard for me to see a huge softening in oil price because if production is going to stagnate in the United States and indeed OPEC plus is going to continue to try to use cutbacks to constrain production, that's not an environment that I think prices fall back from. So, you know, I think a little bit like the comments that we just heard there a second ago from um, from Brian, uh, you know, I think I think it's hard to see that price collapsing to the level that Mike is talking about. But as 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 uh, Clay said, the stakes are on the ground now. Let's 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 see what actually happens. <laughs> if I can just draw one point there um, uh, as well in terms of service company activity, if you look at the fall off in share prices of the likes of Schlumberger, Halliburton, Baker Hughes through the last quarter and indeed year on year. What you see there, and it's let's remember, it's the service companies that actually make things happen at the well site. There is clearly not um, confidence that uh, we're going to see any ramp up in major activity and capital expenditure anytime soon. So I would just like to make that point too. Okay, thanks, James. There's our um, question, survey question for for our viewers: Will the U.S. all mega shale measures in 23 lead to a greater capital expenditure? and higher output levels in 24. What I'm hearing is not really, they may help to sort of maintain where we've got, uh, but they're not necessarily going to, you know, for different technical reasons as well, lead to um, uh, this, the same the same uh, sort of jump, I suppose. Mike, I mean, there is a, I mean, just sticking with the merger sort of story, there's, there's more of them to come, aren't there? There's a few, you know, we saw the two biggies, $100 billion in total, the Exxon deal and Chevron. Um, but is that, is that activity, we're going to see more consolidation in the sector, do you think, going forward? Um, uh, and, and what difference will that make? So um, that is a question, Dala, for my colleagues. I want to just give a little bit of, um, I guess, somewhat pushback, a little counter view on some of what was just discussed. And because we need to, uh, let's have some discourse here. And it's how we learn and educate each other. So first of all, let's look back at the history of oil producers going at it in wars. Iran, Iraq. I remember that bottom came around 10 in 1986. I just, that's when I was in the trading pits and that was a great way when you go at it and you need to buy armaments and you can produce oil, you will and you do. That's what's happening. That has been happening. Let's look at the last significant invasion comparable to um, when um, Vladimir Putin invaded um, Ukraine. And I didn't say Russia, it's one person, um, is when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Oil popped from mm -hmm. 20 to 40. I was in the trading pits then. That high lasted till, what was it? Uh, it was 1990. It was about 
14 years and the bottom came around 10 again 1986 we're soon the same thing now so mm. the potential for geopolitical risks now are great but we just had the biggest event in most people's lifetimes with russia and with um putin's invasion of ukraine in 2022 and we're in the back end of that now so expecting more of that yes it's trickling down but let's just think about if say things do flare up and there's a major supply shock from the middle east what does that do if it pumps oil to 90 it crushes china and europe and it helps the us i mean us is a net exporter and what it does it tilts the world to a recession and that 90 price will end up being 40 within a few years it's just a matter of time if that happens so maybe it's a short-term trade i used to structure options positions for that but you have to be careful and what happened was oil did pop to 95 the week before the invasion. There was a little bit of something going on there. Where are we now? 72. I'm looking, I'm talking about WTI. So I look at it as the key question you have to ask yourself is you have to hope the U.S. doesn't enter a recession. Now, Bloomberg Economics says it's happening this year. Yes, we've been wrong. Yes, we've been early, but it's all kicking over that way. I just published today on PPIs and isms are all heading negative, and it's that cycle with interest rates. Then I look at crude oil is it used to do usually does it part its part to help out. Just the, the, since the peak in 2008, the low's been below 40 and lower every time. The high's been lower and the lows are lower. There's a trend and what stops it? You need global economic expansion. And every time I speak to our economics team, the revisions for global economic growth are downward. So what the actual oil producers, I still think what you describe in this space is why you always need some exposure to oil producing is for and, and, and equities is for that risk of events like what happened when um, when uh, Mr. Putin invaded Ukraine. But right now, the thing is you have to hope and expect these unexpected supply shocks. Yet if you look at the typical cycle in commodities, every time you get a massive shock like we did in 2022, it takes years for those things to work out. And now the technology is more advanced than ever. I just like to point out the most advanced, the biggest demand pull sources of crude oil the last few years, the U.S. has shifted. Now we're a net exporter. You look at um, Japan. Japan used to import almost 4 million barrels a day. Now it's two. Where is the shift? It, it has to come from emerging markets, and they're shifting to EVs really fast. Okay, well, let's talk a bit about net exports. I want just to go to Clay on that. Uh, U.S. Ex oil exports are increasing, and, and LNG. Uh, for that matter. And that gap of the U.S. exports and, and Saudi or OPEC plus exports is narrowing. You know, uh, OPEC plus market share going down, uh, U.S. up. Um, Clay, do you see that? Uh, I mean, obviously, continuing one way or another, you know, we talked about market share at the top of the hour at the beginning. Um, but is that a concern, do you think, uh, for OPEC plus in terms of the U.S.'s focus is on exports, isn't it? It doesn't, you know, in terms of its refineries, they don't need that kind of U.S. oil. They, they export most of it. How much of a concern is that, do you think? Well, I mean, it's always a concern among producers to think about market share, but um, maybe there's a bit too much hype uh, in the public sphere thinking about some impending collapse of uh, of group unity um, and how that would affect prices in the new year and beyond. So to be sure, the United States is now a major supplier of crude oil to the world, just as it had been for a long time for refined products. I mean, 4 million barrels a day plus of crude puts the U.S. Uh, stands along with the biggest exporters uh, within the coalition. So they're always keeping an eye on it, but it would have to be uh, a really acute situation to have the core contributors in, non, in uh, OPEC plus to take a different strategy than they have already, which is managing the market. So we're not expecting them to approach this challenge by kind of 
turning a new chapter, throwing in the towel on supply discipline and trying to surge uh, supply in order to have a race to the bottom for prices and basically undertake a market share war against shale. We're not expecting that to take place in this episode. Um, but what's important to note, though, is the level of, uh, of basically cohesion within the group. Uh, I think everyone noticed that uh, Angola dropped out of uh, uh, the OPEC uh, group recently, but we don't expect things like that. It's marginal in terms of uh, effect on OPEC plus crude supply and total liquid supply in the world. So the main thing to focus on there is um, the signals that are being sent by core members of OPEC plus to adhere to the uh, established agreements and to deliver on target. And we we generally have confidence that they'll be able to, to weather this part of the, the down cycle in terms of prices and, and keep that unity going. So far, the market is not completely buying that optimism, but uh, we think that's liable to pick up when they, if our expectation proves uh, accurate, extend their supply cuts and the market can see uh, reduced supply in, in the marketplace during the first and second quarters of this year, we think balances will tighten. And to speak to the, the macro front and the effect that that has on crude prices, we definitely agree that oil demand growth is slowing in the new year compared to what we had last year in China and in other important markets, but it's, it's hardly um, contracting. And so if we had two, 2.2 million barrels a day of growth supporting oil prices uh, above 80 last year, we still see like 1.6, 1.5 million barrels a day of growth. It's um, the velocity is maybe half of what it was last year, but it's still constructive for oil prices generally. That's how we're approaching the new year. Okay, thanks, Clay. There's our uh, response to the question, uh, will these lead to bigger average levels? No, 56%. It sounds like our, our audience is uh, sort of agreeing with us. James, just a quick question before we wrap up on sort of sentiment, economic global growth sentiment. Mike said that, you know, we're still, Bloomberg is still expecting a U.S. recession. We haven't seen that happen. We saw the U.S. weather, many storms, uh, I suppose, for in terms of interest rate policy, et cetera, that might trickle through. But again, the sentiment you're getting both for well, U.S., China, econo economy, uh, more of the same into 2024 or, or uh, and will that sort of hold us where we are with prices all else remaining equal? Yeah, look, I think it is. I mean, in the short term, I think we will see more of the same. I mean, obviously, black swan events uh, aside. I mean, I, in the in the questionnaire, you know, I think 60, 56, 44, probably split right down the middle. I was a I was a no vote there. I do think we will continue to see improvements in efficiency, but I do not think we will begin. We will see a wholesale switch away from the capital efficiency that the majors have been exercising for the last eighteen months. Into putting spending into into wells, and I don't think uh, I don't think the markets would uh, respond well to that in the course of the next year. We're all still sitting waiting to see what will actually happen there. So for me, um, you know, we've obviously got to watch what will happen, as I say, in terms of um, geopolitics over the course of the next quarter. But I think um, you know we'll see steady as it goes. Um, Biden will still want to try to see prices on the lower side. Um, for the election, I think there will be a, a trade-off between what happens with Fed interest rates. There was a really good session earlier on that was there where um, Arnie was talking about seeing sort of you know reductions in interest rates starting in the in, by the Fed in June, giving three opportunities for reduction by the time the election comes in, and if that has uh, triggers a recessionary environment, 
you know, perhaps an even greater drop in interest uh, rates um, to try to, to to turn it around. So so clearly there is a real playoff inflation, as Mike talks about, against, you know, maintaining and stimulating the US economy with interest rate cuts. And we're going to have to see how those two things play off against each other. OK, thanks, James. Brian, I mean, I see you nodding there. What's your sentiment sitting in the US on where the economy is going this year? Uh you know, we're still seeing pretty healthy numbers all round. Um, would you say, though, that, that those interest rates will start to trickle through and, and we'll go back back to square one, start to <laughs> see them uh, being being at least cut maybe more than people expect? Yeah, and there's a historical uh, good correlation between interest rate hikes and interest rate drops and crude oil price. So it, because it does it, in, impact the economy throughout the infrastructure. So if we do ease rates, which I would expect alongside James, if we do ease rates, I think that that helps support the crude oil price from a economic perspective or currency perspective. Uh, and then there's another factor in addition to that, which is how how to handle uh, the debt issue in the United States. And, and a lot of that is inflating it out and inflating it out adds more economic support to the price when you're looking at a dollar basis. So I think that there's a lot of uh, economic momentum that adds support there. But one thing you asked a, a question about the recession. I mean, honestly, I'm tired of hearing about it over 16 months. And, and well, where is it? When when is it going to be? As a matter of fact, I think one of the, one of the Gulf intelligence uh, there's a gentleman Omar who, who keeps saying no, it, it's not going to show up. It's not going to show up. People are going to be surprised, and we're going to rip. Now he may be a compa- uh, contrarian, uh, but I I like listening to opinions that don't align with myself. And as much as I said earlier, uh, I hold a very bullish bias to the crude oil price, which is different than Mike. But Mike's points are are phenomenal and are really going to make me study a little bit to make sure I sharpen my pencil on my view. But um, I would I would say we haven't seen it yet. There are some indicators. There are some in- forward leading indicators that say it is coming. It may be later this year. It 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 may be in 2025. That it, that it is a slow moving train wreck. Uh, and I don't know where to put those indicators because a lot of people say that the economic growth of 2023 was around catching up from the COVID uh, backlog. So uh, hopefully that answers your question. Okay, th- thanks, thanks, Brian. Clay, I'll, I'll give you the just final word. I want to sort of go to you with a similar question that I asked James earlier, which is not this. And again, we'll be talking about this in a different panel later, but I'd love to get your view on it. Um, in terms of the, the balance of the U.S. policy of, you know, encouraging more production to keep prices in check, particularly in election year, uh, and, and you know, encouraging, obviously, uh, renewables investment, clean, the clean energy, the uh, CHIPS Act, all that, you know, for geopolitical reasons, if nothing else, securing sort of onshoring supply chain. Where Where do you think that the... The, po- the policy will go this year, if you like, in terms of encouraging those two tracks. Yeah, 
Another great question, Diala. Thank you. You know, I was filling my uh, car with gasoline the other day and looking at the pump price and thinking, this is a dream come true for the Biden administration <laughs> and the folks that have been so worried, especially throughout 2023, up until the end, up until the fourth quarter, about the potential for another energy and uh, an oil fuel price spike leading up into this very sensitive election cycle that we have in 2024, that, and this is part of the feedback loops in our industry, that are going to have such an important effect on those geopolitical and, and world uh, policy concerns uh, for the new year and beyond. And so a another Trump administration would look very different for the energy landscape and for global affairs than another Biden administration. And at Rapidan, we're spending a lot of time advising our clients on what those two worlds uh, could look like. But the thing to remember is that right now, it's kind of a, a calm before the storm, and especially correlating with those fuel prices in the United States, which is still the world's biggest market, and so on the demand side. So watch those pump prices, and I think also diesel prices as we get into summer. Another great uh, reason or, or driver to think about the, the supply uh, surprise, if you want to call it that, for last year in terms of United States supply was we didn't have any hurricanes at all uh, that affected the oil patch and oil supply during the summer and hurricane season of 2023. That's kind of rare. I mean, we lost our house in Hurricane Harvey in 2017. We're in a great place now. But my point is that's kind of rare. And the summer between the, the run up to the election and the conventions that will be garnering so much attention in the United States, not just on uh, economic and energy policy, but across the board with these complex problem uh, that the United States has to help lead the world going into the next four years, that kind of confluence of risks could change the price environment very quickly. And even though this isn't part of our base case, if we do have another spike in either gasoline prices and or diesel prices proximal to the election, even if it's uh, kind of way before, like in summertime, it's possible you could see renewed interest by the administration, by others in Washington, in policy interventions in the oil market that could influence the price path. So we're we're helping uh, we're helping navigate those challenges for for our audiences and keeping a close eye on the election lens for oil prices in the new year. Okay, thanks, Kay. You made a point that the Biden and Trump administration would be very different, obviously geopolitically, but maybe on the, you know, make America great again, not so much. I mean, the IRA Act is very much probably something that both both presidents, uh, dare I say it, would, would continue to push. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us uh, so much for this. This brings that, this session to a close. I'm going to ask you to those to stay with us because we're going to continue this hour uh, with an interview that I did with uh, Vitol, the, the head of carbon at Vitol, Michael Curran, uh, not related, slightly related to this topic, uh, we, we were talking about voluntary carbon markets. And of course, that plugs into the whole um, transition and of course, uh, and how they may impact, uh, you know, conventional production as well. So I'd like to ask you to, to stay with us. Turn your cameras off, though, uh, and uh, and stay with us till, till the end of the hour. Uh, and um, I'm going to ask my colleague to, to, to play the interview that I did earlier this week with Michael Carr. And I started by asking him. Uh, again, we were, the topic was voluntary carbon markets, but I started by asking him, um, you know, whether things like this in the U.S. increased U.S. production um, and increased production anywhere, for that matter, 
um, impacts the, 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 the parallel conversation of how well we're doing with the transition and, and, and in turn how it impacts progress on, uh, on, on, you know, progress on things like the voluntary carbon market. So we'll have a listen to that. I'll ask um, Katrina to play that for us. I'm also going to go uh, off camera as well. And we will have a listen uh, into Michael Curran uh, at VTOL. Thank you, Katrina.